Amen to that. Uh, good morning again. Xing Yin Kwai La. Happy uh, Lunar New Year. Gung Hai Fa Choi for those of you in Cantonese, uh, the Cantonese world. Sharon, I know you speak Cantonese. Uh, ten years ago, my three older kids uh, started, their, uh, started Mandarin, started learning Mandarin in school in an immersion program. Two of them continued on that for uh, uh, until now, until the present, still going. I told myself uh, ten years ago um, that I'm going to learn Mandarin with them. And I'll just learn it at home and sort of pick up things and do their homework with them. I lasted about a week. I learned to count to five. And that's about the extent of my Mandarin. What's that? Uh, do it. E-air, sun, say, hu, chu, on, on. It's been a while. Thanks, Abe. <laughs> Abe, you want to come up and help us? I'm going to do a few things a little bit differently this morning. First, for starters, I'd like to review a little bit of what we talked about the last two Sundays, which will be review and refresher for those of you who were here and kind of catch up for those of you who weren't. Uh, Two weeks ago and last week, we talked about the kingdom of God, the topic about which you know now Jesus spoke more than any other topic. Two weeks ago, we heard Jesus say at the very beginning of his ministry what John the Baptist, just right before him as prelude to him, also said about him and for him and on his behalf and in prelude to him, uh, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent, turn, change, look the other direction, be different, think differently, because the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God has come near. It has uh, sort of moved into the neighborhood. Uh, And we uh, talked about a couple of things two weeks ago. One of them was what the kingdom of God is not, because kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, as Matthew often says, as a circumlocution, uh, is hard to get our minds and our arms and our grasp around because it's talked about in so many different ways throughout the Old and New Testaments and even by Jesus himself, primarily in the Synoptic Gospels. So we talked about what the kingdom of God is not, and we talked about what the kingdom of God is. And so I'm going to ask you this morning to participate with me, and it's kind of like, did you do your homework, do you remember kind of stuff, which is awkward because we don't do that very much in the sanctuary, but we're going to do that this morning. I'm going to ask you to give me, give us some reminders of what we said the kingdom of God, first of all, is not. I was wondering, are the answers already up on the, Israel, very good, that was the first thing we said. What else? The church, the United States of America. What else? Not a visible place or concrete place. What else? Not up there. Very good memory. It's not a destination or a location like the United Kingdom. It's not the future, but now. And I think with that, we've got sort of all six of the things we mentioned two weeks ago. Very good. I'm very impressed. Give yourselves a round of love. And now... What did we say was the kingdom of God? How could we accurately describe the kingdom of God? What are some things that we said the kingdom of God is? Dynamic, changing, moving, growing, coming, arriving. Dynamic, what else? A present reality in addition to being the future reality. What else? What's that? God in people's lives, good. All about the king. Good. What else? 
where God's goals are achieved or God's will is done. Good. What else? Glory. Glory. Okay. Authority. Authority. Very good. I'm also 10 years later, don't hear as well. (laughs) The kingdom of God is the authority of God to reign and rule. The kingdom of God is the reality of God. Very good. Those, I think, are up on the screen. Last Sunday morning, we talked again about the kingdom of God. Does anyone remember the main point of last Sunday's message? And again, hate to put you on the spot as a congregation. Things go in one ear and out the other for me very much of the time. Often, I can't even remember what I preached the previous day, and I wrote it and preached it. So my expectations of you are not super high, but they're higher than I are for myself. Anyone remember the main point of what I talked about last Sunday about the kingdom of God or the main points? Come on, I know this is going to be harder. Diane, is that your hand up? Oh. <laughs> Bueller, Bueller, Bueller. Who, who the kingdom of God is for? Anawim. The kingdom of God is for the poor or the poor in spirit. The types of people the kingdom of God is for, for whom the kingdom exists, for whom the kingdom is. The kingdom of God is not just or even primarily for the rich in spirit. And those who are strong, capable, confident, spiritually or otherwise, who have high IQ or high spiritual IQ. More precisely, the kingdom of God is not for those who have earned or who are able to earn or purchase or buy or acquire by their own means, merit, goodness, wealth, or ability, God's favor, God's blessings, God's grace, God's mercy, God's pleasure, salvation. In Jesus' own words, blessed are the poor in spirit, or the spiritually poor, or those who are in poverty spiritually and otherwise. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven, or for theirs is they possess. In fact, they are, it is for them, genitive in the Greek, the kingdom of heaven. All of these unexpected and unexpecting people. The kingdom of God has come near and it is for the least expected in particular. And this we talked about last Sunday is grace. Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount, really his toughest collection of teachings. And really his whole public teaching and preaching ministry with this declaration of grace, blessed are the poor in spirit, the deprived and the depraved, those without, those who aren't on top of the world. Blessed are they. They are blessed, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Our acceptability before God is not dependent on our love for God or about our love for God or even our love for our neighbors, but on and about God's love for us, about the fact that God is love. And so in that and because of that and that alone, we are blessed. The gospel is about God's coming toward us and to us because God is love absolutely 100% regardless of who we are or how we are or what we've done or where we've been or what our lives have been about or what our lives are about, about the things that other people know and the things that people don't know about us. God's love for us is not based on how good looking we are or how beautiful we are or how attractive we are or how appealing we are on the outside or the inside, period. This is grace and this is where Jesus begins. I was in Target this week. As usual, I had my list on my phone. I used to know where everything is at Target. Now I only know where uh, the bananas, the milk, 
the pharmacy and the checkout counters are. So now when I'm in Target, I pretty much go from employee to employee, sort of scanning, looking for a person in red for the next item on my list. And so the next thing on my list was Q-tips. And so I looked for an employee in red and saw one, went up to her and said, where can I find Q-tips? And she said, oh, beauty. And I thought, oh, that's just interesting because in the Pappas family, the only thing we use Q-tips for is get the wax out of our ears. And there's nothing really beautiful about that because people aren't looking in our ears. It just didn't connect. But I went, okay, beauty. And I headed toward where she pointed me toward beauty. And as I walked in that direction, I thought to myself, I bet Target doesn't have a section or a department called ugly. Right? I mean, there's, there's beauty, but there's not a section called ugly. Because we all want to be beautiful. And we all want to be attractive. And we all want to be appealing. And we all want people to look at us with favor, outwardly because of who we are, and inwardly because of who we are. But God doesn't care so much how we look, at least not on the outside, at least not by the world's standards, at least not according to the way that we judge one another and the way that we judge ourselves. God doesn't love us because we're beautiful. Rather, God sees us as beautiful because he loves us. I hope that makes sense. This is grace. Blessed are the poor in spirit and those who are unattractive and not lovely or blessed in the world's eyes for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I got a haircut this week. I get my haircut at the cheapest place that I can find to get my haircut because that's how I am. And uh, I knew going in to the place where I get my haircut that the woman who's cut my hair quite satisfactorily for me for the last seven or eight years was no longer working there. She'd chosen to no longer work there after seven or eight years of cutting my hair. So I knew that I may not get what I had been getting I did not realize, however, that the woman who would cut my hair was probably cutting the first head of hair that she had ever cut before. <laughs> or at least that's what it felt like as I sat in the chair. And as I walked out the door, I felt like I looked like Ernie or Bert. <laughs> that's how I felt on the inside. You get what you pay for. And on the one hand, I felt like cringing, but the words that we'd read last Sunday were still ringing in my heart. And so on the other hand, I, I, I was joyfully reminded that blessed are the people who look like the Muppets and like characters out of a Far Side cartoon and blessed are those who don't have their acts together and who have stopped pretending and have given up on their own efforts to impress and who are aware of their inabilities and their shortcomings and their weaknesses and their humanity and their failures and their suffering and even their misery. Blessed are they because... Theirs is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. In the words of just Brennan Manning, the beloved former Catholic who wrestled with alcoholism so much and just gave up finally on being good himself and embraced the grace of God. The kingdom is not an exclusive, well-trimmed suburb with snobbish rules about who can live there. No, it is for a much larger, homelier, less, con less self-conscious cast of people who understand they are sinners because they have experienced the yaw and pitch of moral struggle. The king has come near, and so his reign and his rule are now more accessible or available than ever before, and that is a good thing. That is a very good thing. Are you with me? 
This morning we're going to look at what the scriptures say and talk about more about this, about one of the attributes of the kingdom. But again, let me uh, pray before we do that, just real quick. As Sean prayed a few minutes ago, God, help us to be shaped by your word, to be attentive to it, to understand it, to have eyes that are good to see and ears that are able to hear. Make our hearts into good soil to receive your word, the things that you would plant in us, cause them to grow for your glory, for our well-being. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Jesus talked more about the kingdom of God than he did other, any other subject. You remember that when the gospel writer, Matthew, writes kingdom of heaven, that's a circumlocution. He really means kingdom of God. Reading from chapter 18 of Matthew's gospel, starting at verse 21, listen closely. This is the word of God. Then Peter came to Jesus, Peter, the closest of Jesus' disciples, and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like, this is one of many parables or stories that Jesus tells to try to help his disciples understand what he means and what is by the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is like a king, no surprise, who wanted to settle accounts with his servants And everyone who is not the king is effectually his servant. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold, which is the way the uh, NIV translates 10,000 denarii. 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him since he was not able to pay the master order that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this The servant fell on his knees before the king or the master. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees, and the language is intentionally exactly the same by Jesus, Matthew. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master, the king, called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This, Jesus says, is how my heavenly Father will treat you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. From your heart. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like, or therefore, the kingdom of God is like. And to tell you the truth, there's a definite part of me that doesn't want the kingdom of God to be like, or at least not to be like that, or at least not all of that. There's a part of me that doesn't want the parable to end with the king or the master handing over his servant, a man that owes him a lot of money to jailers to be, until that man pays back everything he owes, tortured. 
That's not what I want. That's not how I want Jesus' story to end. On the one hand, it's not clear from Jesus' parable parable that the whole parable is what the kingdom of God is like. It may just be that the first part about the merciful king is really what the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is like. But on the other hand, it may be that judgment is a part of the kingdom of God. And that judgment is necessary both as a form of love and or a form of motivation. Or as a manifestation of the inherent justice of the king. But clearly justice is not the king's first and greatest desire. Justice does not represent the king's heart fully. The editors of my Bible titled this passage as the parable of the unmerciful servant. But it maybe should be called the parable of the merciful king and the unmerciful servant. And now back to the beginning. We give to, we have to give Peter credit. He is learning from Jesus. We often think Peter never picks up anything, but he's clearly learning from Jesus. He wants to follow Jesus. He wants to live in the way of Jesus. He wants to live according to the teachings of Rabbi Jesus, his rabbi. Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. And there was back in the book of Amos, the prophet Amos in the Old Testament, this repeated phrase and statement that God forgives three times and then God's at the end of it at four. And so Peter may actually be be being generous by doubling that Amos idea that was common among rabbinic circles of the day. Forgive someone three times and then that's enough. And so Peter says, almost doubling that and more, shall I forgive those who sin against me seven times? Jesus replies to Peter, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times, which you know can be translated in the Greek either as 77 times or 70 times seven times. Either way, Jesus' point is a very large number, even infinity. We are to forgive continually, always, There is no point to stopping. There are no limits on our forgiving to forgiveness to forgiving. It's interesting in Matthew's version of this parable, Matthew's Jesus doesn't talk about repentance here. Not right here. A little bit before and a little bit after, but not right here in the parable. There's no requirement or precondition of forgiving because He doesn't want people to think that my forgiveness is dependent on the other person saying I'm sorry or repenting. He doesn't want to leave that as a possible out. And the forgiveness is just unconditional. Seven times? No. Seventy times seven. Over and over and over and over. And to illustrate his point, Jesus tells a story about a wealthy king or master who was ready to settle his debts. And this king begins with a man whose debt is so enormous that he will never repay it. And so for the man's failure and complete inability to pay, the king has to do something. in the So the king forces the man to liquidate his assets. And that doesn't even put a dent in the debt. And so the king throws into jail not only the man but also his wife and children, which was against the law in Jewish culture and law. But it's part of Jesus' parable anyway to show the extremeness of the man's debt. The severity of the man's debt and the, a person's incredible outstanding a debt that it just goes overboard and on and on and is unpayable. 
And then the story turns, the man asks for the king patience, and the king replies not just with patience, but with completely unexpected mercy. The king takes pity on the man, or he has compassion on him, and then he frees him and his family as well, and then he cancels his debt completely, a debt that there's no way he was ever going to repay. But he doesn't reduce it. He doesn't manage it like we hear about uh, on TV and on the radio, ways to reduce your debt, manage your debt, make it more likely that you'll pay it off one day. He simply cancels the man's debt. There's been talk in American politics about canceling the educational loans that college students in our country have incurred, which in some cases are thousands of dollars, some cases are hundreds of thousands of dollars, often tens of thousands of dollars. This man's debt is literally, if we were to try to translate it into modern terms, would be zillions of dollars of debt, unpayable. But the mercy of the king apparently has little impact on the cancellation of his debt on this man. He comes across another servant who owes him money, a small amount of money, a hundred silver coins, intentionally a small amount for Jesus to make his point in relation to the monstrous, enormous sum that he had been forgiven. But this servant exhibits no mercy toward the man who owes him a small sum, no mercy at all. The servant who was owed money throws the servant who owed him money into jail. It all sort of follows the same pattern except flipped over. And those who witness this, this man's fellow servants, are just absolutely shocked that the great mercy that this man first received had had apparently no impact on his heart at all. None. And it's true that the first implication or inclination of primitive man, and your and my, probably your, also certainly mine. Our first inclinations are for that debt to be repaid and for revenge. To get back at people, to exact some sort of payment or justice, or if we can't get that, then punishment. We read back in Genesis 4, some of you are reading through the Bible this year, you cruised through Genesis 4 when you were still fresh, back on the first or second day of January, and remember Lamech's revenge. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech will be avenged seventy-sevenfold. But God in Jesus reverses Lamech's revenge. For all of humanity, and he opens the door to a new way of being not only with other people and with one's debtors, but being in here and being in a relationship with the king. There is no human being who has not amassed an unpayable debt to God. Few of us think of ourselves in that way. Jesus wants us to understand the reality. There is no human being who has not amassed a debt to God that is unpayable because of our sin, because of our laziness, because of our lack of caring, because of our rebellion. There is no human who has amassed, who has not amassed an unpayable debt to God, and that may be the first great anthropological truth of the gospel. 
And the second is that we do not have the means ourselves to pay that debt. The servant Jesus in Jesus' parable would need countless lives to pay back his debt. But then God has mercy on us. And that is the first act of the gospel drama. And that, frankly, is as far as a lot of people and a lot of Christians and a lot who understand Christianity from the outside get. That is act one of salvation. And sometimes when we have reached that point in the story, we think it's done, we think it's complete, we think it's over, but it's not. In the Gospel of Matthew and the rest of the New Testament, the forgiveness of sins, in other words, the mercy of the King and of God, is the largest gift in Jesus' message of the kingdom, but it is not the end of the drama. It is not the end of the story. Though the servant of Jesus' story is discharged from jail, he is not discharged from his duty as a servant, as a person, as a human being. This parable teaches the call and even the responsibility of the forgiven. So I want to be really careful in how I say this right now. The king's forgiving in Jesus' parable was without required conditions. Just plain and simple. With, it just, but it was not without expected consequences. While the king required no past and nothing from the past or in the past, he expected and maybe can be said to have required something in the future. According to Matthew's gospel, a person cannot win, earn, or merit God's mercy. But looking at just this parable, a person can lose it. And that function's really interesting with Jesus when he teaches us to pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And there is in Matthew's gospel and all of the gospels and in the New Testament, this inseparable interrelatedness of life in the kingdom and salvation that you cannot, it just doesn't seem to be possible to receive God's love and to not also share it. To be loved, but not also be a vessel of it. And maybe it is possible, but if it is possible, it is not the kingdom of God. And it is not the full story of eternal life or salvation as described in the scriptures. Jesus inseparably connects who God is and who we become in relationship to him and his kingdom. And so the prompt of the story is both encouragement and warning. It shows us a way, the way that God is toward us, and it shows us a way that in God, with God in us, filled with his spirit, we are to be and will be with other people. Not once, not twice, not three times, not seven times, but continually, regardless of the other person's response or disposition. Forgive as I have forgiven you, as you have been forgiven, Paul wrote to the Colossians, you remember. 
Forgive as God has forgiven you, and so we forgive others. Have mercy as you have received mercy. And when and as you do and we do, we will see, experience, participate in, and know the kingdom or the reign or the rule or the reality of God now in our lives, in our relationships, in our hearts, in our minds. Let's pray. We know now and understand, God, that your kingdom runs on mercy. That your heart is mercy, that your inclination is mercy, that your want is mercy. For the world you love, for the people you love, for the servants you love, for the debtors that you love, have loved and promised to love. And not only do you want us to understand your mercy, but you want that mercy to so fill us that we cannot not offer that mercy to others, always and continually. Help us in this way, bring us into your kingdom that is near. Be glorified. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.